You know what the trouble is with you? You've got no appreciation. All right. Maybe I did get a little money from that man. And you're entitled to that. But I'm entitled to my share for getting it for you, ain't I? Now, where do you think you'd be without me? You think them folks would spend a penny to send you east? No, sir. But who got you a ticket to St. Joe? Who got you a knee-high in a Coney Island? And threw in $20 extra. Not to mention 85 cents for that telegram. You wouldn't have had any of that without me. Now, I didn't have to take you, but I took you, didn't I? All right, I think that's fair enough. We're both a little better off. We get to St. Joe, I get myself a little better car. Fair is fair. Now, break your knee high and eat your Coney Island. I want my $200. I don't have your $200 no more, and you know it. If you don't give me my $200, I'm going to tell a policeman how you got, and he'll make you give it to me because it's mine. But I don't have it. Then get it. Welcome to Stuff We've Seen. Stuff We've Seen. <laughs> it's the place where you go to get your entertainment fix. Yeah. Uh, this Wait, is, we have a theme song now. <laughs> well, wow, we've had them in the past, and now I'm bringing it back again. <laughs> now, I don't know. I'm just in a jolly mood because, you know, nothing much is going on in the country right now at all, right? Good. The, democracy's just, still safe, right? <laughs> yeah, we don't worry about that. We're, no. <laughs> we're worried about, you know, uh, what kind of money Mulan made. We'll see what happens. That would that would be the yeah. We'll see what happens. Um, <laughs> hey, this is your host James Kent, and with me is Teal. Hi. There you go. Um, <laughs> yes, uh, that was my big introduction this time. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, we're gonna try to run down a few things as fast as we can, so we can get into all the goodies. Last episode. I talked about this French film that was causing controversy, Mignon or Cuties. It almost seems like, what? There was a controversy because so much other stuff has happened in the country. And it's been forgotten, you know, Ted Cruz and and, and some hashtags uh, went off on this. And there was a whole cancel Netflix thing from people who hadn't seen the movie. But it's, uh, it's died down and Netflix did not pull the movie and... Uh, they changed the artwork and that's about it. And uh, nobody's talking about it. Well, anymore. because like I said, when, when some, some stuff in the country happens, like it did in the past week, that just changes everything. So yeah, here's the deal. You didn't see it, right? No. Well, it's still available. I got to see the whole thing. That was a good movie. I just don't think it was worth all of the commotion um, for, for, you know, for real. I, I think it was actually a, a film that was commenting on the idea that when kids are going through adolescence and they're going through a lot of stuff, uh, and in this case, girls, everybody wants to feel older. That's what that age group does. So they do yeah. things that make them feel like they're the older girls and they don't really make a connection that what they're doing has a sexual connotation. Even right. if they're, they're like, just, say, yeah, they're just imitating adult behavior. Exactly. Or, or like pop culture behavior. Right. Right. Yeah. I guess that's what I mean. Yeah. Like they're things they've seen modeled in the world. They're just, so, I mean, I thought, so, so I thought it was a fascinating uh, film and had a lot to say. Um, it's a good movie. I'd give it a thumbs up, but again, 
it, you know, if sometime you see it or, or maybe, you know, your, your, your wife and, and daughter see yeah. it, we could talk about it another time. But I did want to say that I got to see the whole thing and Netflix didn't remove it. And, and it's a decent movie. It's definitely a decent movie. And uh, hey, are you going to check out that uh, Enola Holmes movie coming on Netflix? It's on there now. Well. What do you mean? Well, your, your, your daughter, shouldn't she a big Stranger Things fan? No, that's what I was just going to say, that I am going to check it out. Yes. Oh, we're we're going to watch it this weekend. My my wife, our youngest, we all think it looks amazing. It looks hilarious. I haven't seen any of the trailers or anything. Oh, it looks so good. Yeah, I'm definitely going to be checking it out. My daughter is a big fan of Bobby Brown. So Yeah, and you know what? She's using a, a, an actual British you know accent, which is her own accent. right? So which is it, her own accent. So oh, great. it looks great. I think it looks like a lot of fun. Good family movie. Um, so we're going to watch that. Uh, and then also we got sucked in. There's a, I think it's Netflix has this film on. It's pretty amazing. Uh, it just, you know, how, like when you're clicking on Netflix, something yeah. new pops up and they start showing you a, a trailer for it, whether you wanted to see it or not. Uh huh. Yeah. I hate the Netflix autoplay. Well, because yeah, they can spoil something sometimes, which you don't want to have spoiled. Well, and sometimes I want to click on something and have it take me to a page for the movie where yes. I can see the cast and stuff, but it just starts playing it. Yeah, and you can't really shut that off, can you? No, you can't really shut it off. <laughs> but uh, so there's this documentary and it's called My Octopus Teacher or The Octopus Teacher, I think. Okay. It's this uh, guy who was a documentary filmmaker for years. He's a, he's a South African guy. Yeah, My Octopus Teacher. That's it. Yeah. He's burned out, right? editing projects and stuff all these years. Right. I mean, he really was like having a nervous breakdown. So him and his family kind of retreat to a sort of his family area that he lived like on this uh, Cape, beautiful cove area in South Africa where he used to love to swim okay. in the water. Well, he goes uh, snorkeling and that's something he used to do. And he's really talking about, you know, because obviously this guy's done a lot of nature documentaries, right. has a lot of camera equipment. Well, he makes a discovery. He discovers this octopus down there and he decides what would happen if I just go and visit the octopus every day? <laughs> and they form a friendship. It's amazing. We started watching it last night because it looked so good and we were watching it with my youngest. We're really sucked in. We can't wait to watch the final hour because it's compelling. Okay. I'm totally you into gotta, this. It's, it's so yeah. great. It just really feels magical because what this guy, he's connecting with the world and nature in a way that he just really took for granted. And he sees right. what an intelligent creature, because it's clearly like there's a, there's actual trust and communication going right, on right, right. with this creature. And it makes you realize, whoa, there are creatures that are, you know, living in the water that are possibly as intelligent as we yeah. are and that we should respect that. <laughs> but sometimes those creatures taste good. Uh, stop it. When you see, <laughs> wait till you see what this octopus can do. It is freaking phenomenal. <laughs> Anyways, uh, so there's that. Okay, so another thing that we're going to try, we're going to try to run through some of this stuff as really as quick. A couple episodes ago, or was it last episode? I don't know. Uh, a uh -huh. couple episodes ago, I went and saw that, I, I talked about seeing Tenet, right? Yeah, I think that was like two episodes ago. Yeah. So here's the update of that. There's like two kind of films that did experiments right now. Yes. And because there's a lot of films that have been held off by the studios until, you know, they're kind of waiting for the pandemic to die down. Uh, and now they realize that it ain't dying down anytime soon. So Tenet decided to do a big uh, release in theaters globally where a lot of markets were open. It's done very well. So then they released it in U.S. and it was the big test to see, well, is this going to get people back to the theaters? Which, of course, right. if people started flocking to the theaters again, that's going to open up more theaters and, and <laughs> right, everybody's right, happy. Right. There was a whole slate of films that were going to come out later this fall. Well, 
It's been out for a few weeks. And in uh, the U.S., Tenet has made a total of $36 million. Yeah, which is not good. It is bad. It's made about $251 million globally. And that counts yeah, to the U.S. That movie's barely breaking even. Oh, no, it's not going to. It has to make $400 million. Okay, so it's, it's not going to. And it would have uh, probably under normal circumstances. But nobody wants to go to the movies right now. Well, I think that's what shows you is that, you know, you can open things up and people in different states can see like, look, we don't need masks and all that stuff. But the reality yeah. is great. It's all open. But most people with common sense are going to say, nah. I don't think so. Well, and that's exactly it. Most people are just not ready to run out to the theater. But that said, uh, the other big movie that's uh, an experiment is Mulan. I call it an experiment in terror because <laughs> Disney's like, we're going to give you Mulan on our streaming service that you already pay for as long as you pay another $30. Okay. So I was on, I, I was on Disney plus the other day and it had, and I clicked on Mulan to see, you know, how the payment worked and stuff. I was just curious. And it said down at the bottom of the page, you know, pay the premium now to watch it before it releases to all of Disney plus on December 4th. Ah, so there you go. Now you actually know what the window is and see somehow yes. magically when you go, when you could see something in the theater, the window might be that like, it, like, for instance, if Milan was playing in theaters, that same you can see it on Disney Plus might be December 4th. But right. when you go to the theater, it doesn't say watch in the theater now or just <laughs> or, wait a couple of months. And it's <laughs> wait like that, a couple of months. And yeah. And so yeah. I can, you know, my eldest daughter doesn't even want to see this movie. She thinks it looks terrible. I uh, won't even see it when it's when it's streaming for free. I will. I don't know. I mean, I, I just doesn't look very good. And I actually think that what it also shows you is that had this movie come out, it was in March. Yeah, I actually think that sure it would have done more than it is now. It would have been much more of a success, but I still think that it would have still taken the critical drubbing and audiences were going to stay away. It didn't really have a lot of buzz. I don't think anybody was that excited about it. I think you're right. Uh, so in China, it's failed. Oh, in China, it totally failed. China has plenty of films that are like Mulan, but better. And so why do they need to see Americans version? Yeah, no, absolutely. There's plenty of that. Yeah. So why watch this one? And yeah, I just, uh, nobody really cared. You know, it's amazing. Like the Trolls movie did big business. The estimate, and there was some confusion at first, but they've estimated that Mulan made about 60 to anywhere from 60 to 90 million streaming. Yeah. Which is less than the Trolls film. And I think that A, the price point was $10 too high. I Absolutely. Yeah. And had they done it in the spring when people were just craving to like get out of their houses because they were really on lockdown, they might have had a little bit of a hit. Yeah. It has made $300 million worldwide where they, they were looking for the next billion dollar film. Yeah. And so then you mentioned something to me about this yesterday, but like West Side Story is being pushed back a year. Well, OK, so this is the spillover. Basically, I think it's more about the failure of Tenet than yeah. Milan, especially now where, oh, everybody stopped. You know, they opened up everything and now, you know, cases are rising all over the place. Yes. So studios are like, yeah, we can't put things in the theater. So this is what's really tough for theaters that did open. There's just nothing available <laughs> to see. And there's not going to be this fall. They're all the. And they can't sell concessions I some mean, of the states can some can't like mine in vermont but, but i just don't see how theaters are going to stay in business well here's what's i mean one is interesting is alternate programming so a lot of independent films there's a there's a filmmaker and she's got some stuff on criterion she's only made a few films called uh, her name is miranda july you ever seen any of her oh movies? yeah 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 I she's know got she a new is, film yeah. called cajillionaire okay now this is a film that probably would be uh, playing in a couple of art theaters and right. then it would be on demand 
it's actually getting released in theaters because theaters have nothing. So I think that's kind of fascinating <laughs> that a movie like Kajillionaire is going to get seen by somebody. And if I had a theater, if like the theater that I went to wasn't an hour and 40 minutes away, since nobody is going to the theater, I would take advantage of it. But it's too far right. away. I can't go there. Um, and not to see Kajillionaire anyway. <laughs> so here's a sad thing, though. Right. So this theater that opened, they were counting on Tenet being the first of many. Right. Yeah. Well, now they don't. Now that all those releases are pulled, like the James Bond movie is not going to come out. Uh, Black Widow is not coming out. All the movies, you know, so. So, unfortunately. Well, and those are the big kind of tentpole movies that we're aware of, but there's a lot of sort of middle range movies. Oh, yeah. Who knows what even's happening with them? A lot of them yeah. are coming out like they're just finding different uh, on demand release strategies. Right. And at some point, there's going to be a dearth. Like, for instance, there's Redbox, which occasionally I would rent something on a Redbox. Right. They haven't had any real new releases. All the stuff that they got in there now is the stuff that was coming out just as the pandemic started. Right. Absolutely. So, they've got nothing new to offer. <laughs> Well, and nobody's making new stuff. But here's the thing. So this is, this is the real danger. You've got, A, theaters that never even opened. And how long? I mean, the theaters that I always talk about that I love, like the there's the Coolidge, the right. Somerville, and the Brattle, all in Massachusetts. These are my art standbys. Well, they've never opened. And so right. they've done the virtual theater thing. And I actually contributed because it was uh, at the Brattle had this. One of my all-time favorite movies, Jazz on a Summer's Day. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Burt Stearns, right? They did a whole new uh, 4K restoration. Oh, beautiful. And they did it on the virtual cinema. I actually paid the money and, and rented it on the virtual cinema. Well, hey, while we're talking about virtual cinema. Yeah. The New York Film Festival. Yeah. Okay. So uh, that, of course, will have been over by the time this airs probably next week. But they are offering, and I might, I got to remember and see if it's still available because I did talk to my wife and she's available to watch it tomorrow night. Uh, a yeah. movie that's making a lot of waves is this film called Nomadland. Yes, with um, Frances McDormand. And they're saying that it could be a third Oscar for her for this movie. And they're also saying that it is a a strong contender for best film and Mm -hmm. best director, which would be amazing because it would be not only one of the very few female directors ever nominated, but it would be the first Asian female. Yes. Chloe Zhao, right? Director of The Rider. As you know, one of our absolute favorites from a couple years ago. Yep. One of our absolute favorites. And this movie, again, looks like, I don't know, it's got a 98 on Metacritic critic like i i think it's going to be pretty good a film festival that you can't uh, attend in person and normally someone like you and i unless we had a lot of bag of cash and could go to these film festivals we'd never be able to see this film we just hear about it well they were offering a a special thing for the festival where you could pay 25 dollars and you can watch this thing virtually even if you're just you or me right right and so the deal is, though, you, you would, if, you, if you're able to grab a virtual ticket, you pay the money and then it becomes available. I don't know yet all those details, but presumably there's a service and I can watch it on my uh, big screen TV like I was able to watch uh, Jazz on a Summer's Day. And I got a small window. So if, if there's still tickets tomorrow evening from like 8 to 11 is a window that I could start watching it. And then you got, the, you know, you have like a two hours or three hours from the time you start it to be able to yeah. watch it. So it's a limited window, but that's because they're trying to keep it in a festival and not like, you know, just. And it's also, I'm uh, looking at it right now as we speak and it's sold out. Okay. Well, I, I blew it. I had it literally ready to do and I didn't do it. <laughs> but that's also interesting that they're limiting the number of people who can see it. So it's not actually a release. That's right. Exactly. That would, could because that could, they're right. So I think that's a smart move. Yeah. 
it's a smart move because it yeah it just keeps it to what a festival audience would be because he there's something about the way it's a it's a mental thing a psychological where yeah you know i i'm not i'm paying for something because it's exclusive i get to see it on yes. a very small window and then we could talk about it on the show right um and had i known a little bit that we're going to and do it's this, a movie i really 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 want to see well that's what i'm saying this is like a movie that i'm going to hear about now Mm-hmm. And I've been dying to see it. So so even the festivals are looking at different things. Yeah. And it's just interesting to see how it's going and what's working and how the uh, how the whole industry is in flux. And it, I don't think it's going to look the same on the other side of this. This is what my concern is, is that, well, they opened, right? And now people aren't coming. But I, I wonder if it's more dangerous to open instead of just staying closed because they opened and they were only open nights except for the weekends they were open, but they also only were showing like a seven o'clock show. That's not the way a theater usually does. It's like right. they, there's afternoon shows and then there's a seven and a 10 o'clock. Well, now their newest, they're showing things like for the, they're going to show Halloween themed like family movies in right, October. Right. They're going to show Empire Strikes Back, like anything that they can get their hands on, they're showing. Right, right. But- they're going to be only open Wednesday, Thursday, Friday nights, and Saturday and Sunday, you know, afternoons and early evenings. No Mondays or Tuesdays. They're already cutting back their days. Right. Because they just, otherwise they're open with no customers. Exactly. And, you know, they have to pay their salaries of the employees and all that. So, I mean. And your electricity and. So, things yeah. aren't going well. And I'm, you know, I can't, there's so much to worry about now. And of course, as a film person, I, again, I'm already wrecking, like, I will weep the day that I find out the Somerville Theater closes. And I hope it doesn't. Yeah. But I recognize that that's a possibility that these theaters may never open again. Exactly. Yeah. It, it's it's a business that's taking a huge hit. Yeah. And of course, we. I mean, look, you know, a lot of things, but let's, let's, we'll pick on the government for this. We do not have a government that cares about the arts in any fashion and they're never going to fund them. Correct. So that's it. They could care less. And then you know what? People out there, if you're listening, look, if you love those like Marvel movies and all these and you love to go into the theater to see your thing, well, that's where you should care because you may not be getting that. Because <laughs> you may... They may not be making those $200 million movies yeah, for a so, while. You, know, you think about the people that you vote. You don't think how downstream those decisions on the top kind of filter the way to your own everyday life and the things you enjoy, yeah. but you're going to be doing without them. I'm going to kind of keep things on schedule. And we got two movies, I think, that we're going to talk about. So I want to just briefly say that while every week somebody passes away, Kind of a biggie in uh, in our childhood growing up in yeah. movies and sort of a legend, cinematographer, camera operator, uh, Michael Chapman. He died at the age of eighty four, and like like a lot of these folks, they didn't he didn't keep working up until eighty four. So he kind of right, stopped right. working, and then I'd say you know from maybe in his sixties on up, you know he, he took a few paycheck gigs, nothing fancy. Yeah, his last movie was uh, Bridge to Terabithia in 2007. So, you know, he did a lot of those kind of films. However, he started out as a camera operator and he was on some legendary uh, films. He was a camera operator for The Landlord, uh, Husbands, Mm -hmm. uh, Clute, The Godfather. Jaws, I think. Jaws, yes. And that's also, I think, that, you know, when we got into cinematography, some of the great things about Michael Chapman, it was, well, lighting was fine, but it, he yeah. had this way about movement in camera. It, yes. That really was, I think, that was his trademark. And then he had a couple of, um, he, he formed a bond with certain directors. 
And so Hal Ashby from working mm-hmm. on The Landlord, he gave him his first cinematography gig and it was really hard to get him into the union for it uh, with the last detail. Oh, yeah. yeah. That's his first actual uh, gig as a cinematographer. Yeah. And then he still continued on doing um, like, you know, again, camera operator for Jaws. Right. So then, of course, he got involved with Martin Scorsese and he did Taxi Driver. Yes. And Taxi Driver, again, not, not only the fact that, you know, shooting at night a lot of times, but just mm-hmm. the way the camera moved in that movie. Yeah. And I think this comes from him having been an operator. Absolutely. Absolutely. He he just learned about movement. That's the trademark I always thought is that, sure, Scorsese understood camera movement, but you also had to have a kind of that partner in crime. And I think that, you know, so and then another feat, right? And this is where a, a movie, a documentary you don't really think about in the cinematography, but you do for Scorsese's The Last Waltz. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Because that is a crazy feat of Scorsese planning out every shot and right. multiple cameras and not showing <laughs> the audience, which is something that most concert movies used to do at the time. And Chapman running around with all those guys. And then, of course, it uh, culminated with the masterpiece between Scorsese and Chapman, Raging Bull. Which is just, yeah, I mean, it's a masterpiece. It's one of the... Uh and the look of that film is, yeah, I mean, it's just amazing. And the camera movement and the different film stocks and yeah. Yeah. Cause when you watch that film uh, again, I think we've had this debate before of whether or not you feel like you're watching something from the fifties or not, but what you right, certainly right. don't feel like at any point in time is that you're watching a movie that was made in 1980. Exactly. That even though it features actors that obviously were modern at the time, it just does not feel like a film that was in that time and place. It feels from you know, like he dug it out of a vault. Well, it does, except. <laughs> oh, boy. Well, first of all, the framing, it's, you know, Scorsese wanted to do it one three three, and the producer said, we've given you enough, Marty. It's not going to happen. Um, and that would have probably made it even more so. But, you know, no, I'm, I'm not even joking. They were like, no, that's oh, it. Like, we're yeah. cutting you off. Yeah. <laughs> it's 1-8-5, Marty. <laughs> Oh, man. But he also, he worked with Philip Kaufman, too, on yes, Invasion yes, uh, of the Body Snatchers, The Wanderers. And, uh, and, um, Rising Sun. Yeah, Rising Sun. The worst Philip Kaufman movie. Yeah, yeah. So I guess. But you know what he also did, which was pretty amazing? Because he had, again, this is where his, um, what he learned on Raging Bull. He had to take yeah. and marry old footage with new footage and make it seamless. Dead men don't wear plaid. Yes. That is great. That is great. And then, of course, everybody's favorite 80s movie, Shot the Lost Boys. People love the Lost Boys, don't they? More than I did, but I mean, it, you know, it, I recognize it now as part of my 80s youth. I guess so. I saw it in the theater when it came out. Haven't seen it since. You only saw it once? Yeah. What, do you work at a video store? That thing wasn't on like permanent play or whatever at night? Nah, <laughs> okay, no, okay. no, no. I saw that as a sneak preview. We're running it as a sneak preview. And for some reason, they decided at our theater to show it at midnight in one of the empty mm. theaters or something. And uh, a few of us got to go see it. And, uh, you know, I enjoyed it. But I remember like really being amped up for it. And then right. it just didn't didn't excite me as much, but you know, I recognize it. Like I would love to watch it for nostalgic purposes now. I, I, I would be willing to take a look at it again. I just, uh, you <laughs> got know, the Corys. I know. I just feel like it's a mediocre movie. That's my memory. It's, of well, it it's a Joel Schumacher film. That's Mr. Mediocre, right? Yeah. And well, he's, he's made like two good movies. Oh, which ones were those? Falling Down? Tigerland. I didn't like that. 
You so didn't like Tiger Land? No, I didn't. It's got Colin Farrell in it. Well, I don't like Colin Farrell, but. <laughs> yeah, well, it, he's all over that movie. I didn't like it and didn't like anything about that movie. Really? Yep. Okay. I know um, it was him trying to be bold. He was shooting at 16 millimeter and all that stuff. And it's just, eh. oh, I did like, speaking of 16 millimeter, I liked eight millimeter a little bit. <laughs> okay. But we're, uh, let's not get off on it. Uh, Joel Schumacher it really needs his own episode. Okay. But I just want to tell you, maybe this is the start of something I, I am uh-huh. watching on Amazon. <laughs> and and as, as my wife falls asleep at night, I like narrate it as if it's Mystery Science Theater 3000, St. Elmo's Fire. Oh, yeah. It's got that 80s trope of like, let's make fun of the fact that someone was drunk driving. Yep. <laughs> it really, like, isn't that, oh. <laughs> drunk driving is such good comedy. Yeah, that movie is hilarious in the wrong ways. Um, okay, so Michael Chapman, he was one of the greats and he's gone. Yes. <sighs> Which one do you want to do first? Movies. We got two movies. We got two movies. One of them, one of them, we cut out of the last show. I started talking about it, and then since you said you'd watch it, we just completely cut it out, so you didn't hear. Let's it. do that first. You want to do that first? Yeah. Okay. So, good old Francis Ford Coppola. Yes. He's been fond of going back to his films. Uh, he went and he redid The Outsiders uh, by putting in some footage, uh, took out some stuff, put in the ending, mm-hmm. the original ending of that. And he has monkeyed around with Apocalypse Now several times. <laughs> Endlessly. <laughs> yeah. And a couple of years ago, he did this like final cut, which I've not seen. I, I've seen in yeah. the theater, no less. I saw the uh, Redux version. Yep. I saw that in the theater. I loved it. Me too. I loved it. I like it better than the than the theatrical. Yeah, guy. because for me, it finally makes the end of the movie, which I never really thought worked. Right. I feel like the ending was earned by the extra length of time it took to get there. And there's more stuff with Brando. There's a couple more scenes that that make their relationship seem more in a way that makes sense as opposed to just kind of incoherent rambling for 45 minutes. Well, I don't know if this has ever been talked about, but I felt watching it that what maybe Coppola was going for is that Sheen's journey was like going through the seven pillars of hell. Yes, and yes, that yes. by the time he gets to where like he's greeted by um, Brando's people, I feel like he finally, the journey he arrived. Yes. And now all the surreal moments through that journey and we have more put in especially with them especially yeah. with the, the the french plantation scene it feels like okay now this makes sense that he's ended up here because he's half mad himself now right 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 exactly um so i really really liked it however one week later uh or maybe even less than a week later after my uncle and i saw it 9-11 happened <laughs> Oh. Kind of just like wipe that out of people's memory. So I haven't seen what he's done with the new version. Maybe we should watch that for a future episode. Yeah, uh, yeah. I'd have to read. Like I'm waiting for it to come out streaming for free. Um, okay. Has it yet. Yeah. So uh, one of the things that I always knew, I've always been fascinated by the whole Cotton Club saga. And I mean that because it was like one of these behind the scenes nightmares. And it was well known at the time that it was. As a kid, I remember hearing because I hadn't seen The Godfather when the Cotton Club, when I first saw the trailer for the Cotton Club. And there was all this talk about, you know, how the film was in trouble. And there was like producers and money people and somebody was murdered and there was like cocaine and all this other crazy (laughs) stuff. And I didn't know any of that. But then before The Cotton Club came out that December of 84, I saw The Godfather. Oh, okay. Yeah. And I read The Godfather book, 
because I, I was I was like I was just such a fan of this Godfather movie. I was like, oh my god, this thing is one of the best things I've ever seen. So now I'm really excited to see the Cotton Club, right? Because I'm like, this is the same guy that directed it. It's the same it. guy, similar era, kind of gangsters, yeah. And then I remember thinking, well, this has got to be like it, just like the Godfather. It needs to be a three-hour epic. Right. And then I read like already the reviews are terrible, that it's like really chopped up and it's only like two hours and five minutes. And I'm like, right. but wait a minute, this movie is supposed to be epic. <laughs> That's And I just, I went in going like at a 14 year old thinking this movie, like why, why would they do that? And I went and saw it with my father at the theater. And I remember... Just watching this film, feeling like, wow, this movie does, doesn't work. There's just these right. moments and it's visually awesome, but it's kind of dragging because it's almost cut too much. So like, it doesn't make sense. So I'm working too hard. There's not a flow to it. Yeah. Yeah. So you have to like, like you said, you, you're working to kind of put the movie together because it's not really putting itself together for you very well. Yeah, and so it was weird. By the end of it, I really was like, you know, I was only 14. Yeah. And, and maybe because, again, it was so choppy, I had a hard time really understanding what the plot was because I didn't even know. I thought it was a whole fake movie. Like, I didn't know it was even, like, kind of based on characters like Dutch Schultz. I didn't. Oh, okay. I had no frame of reference. Right, uh, right. And I was also really excited to hear about, like, I, I like jazz music even at yeah. that age. And I was just excited to find out the story of what the t title of the movie was, The Cotton Club. Right, And right, I wanted right. to see all these cool dances from like Gregory Hines and stuff. Yeah. And then I got out and was like, I don't understand. It's this movie <laughs> called The Cotton Club, but there's like hardly any of The Cotton Club in the movie. And and that's like, it was like, that was the reason why I wanted to see it as a kid. Right, right. <laughs> and I also felt like some of the acting, I was like, this Richard Gere guy, he's not very good. And Diane Lane, she's like- borderline terrible so <laughs> i then you know years go by no yeah. interest in it years go by before i ever see any moments of it again and i catch a portion on tv i don't know a few years ago and yeah. i watch like the last 40 minutes of the movie i still can't even remember what that version was like right but right. i remember going it's just not working what i'm watching however like in the last sort of like five minutes of the movie i said boy this has an energy that the rest of the movie doesn't have as it's wrapping right. up. And I'm like, you mean where it's intercutting the tap dance? Yeah. And it's sort of like this sort of like fantasy ending of sorts. Yes. And I'm like, this isn't earned. And I don't know what happened, <laughs> right. but I do know that this movie really wasn't this short. And I know that there was a lot of like the studio forced him to cut stuff. And of course, back then, you know, unless you had a masterpiece on your hands, they didn't want to release three-hour movies because you could only show it a few times a day. Exactly, yep. And the movie was like one of the most expensive movies at the time, and so they needed to make their money, so. Which is bizarre because I got, I mean, maybe at the time, but I feel like. It cost like 50 million bucks. Not a lot of that money is on the screen. You know, remember, now CGI saves a lot, but all those sets and costumes and everything. The, oh, all I know, I know. It's, it's so expensive. In New York, they shoot in New York City. I mean. No, I no, you're right. It just, I, I, it was hugely expensive and it bombed. And it was a huge tank, right? It was a huge tank. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it made like, like $30 million total. So I read, when I'm reading about this latest version of Apocalypse Now that came out like it, like a last fall. Right. Right. I hear that Francis Ford Coppola, he had discovered a tape that he had of his, like one of his early edits of the Cotton Club that he was turning into the studio. And he was looking at Beta and 
he's like, boy, it would be fun to restore it. And some companies said, yes, this is great. Because, you know, content now is different and right. people can sell something like for nostalgia or whatever, but they can sell these director cuts. Absolutely. And yeah. he had to put some of his money into it, but he got a lot of finishing money and the negative was like an amazing shape. So what he did was he went back and started to play with the Cotton Club. He took out 20 minutes or tw or more of original footage. Yeah. Some of it was probably like montages and things that were designed okay. to fill in the gaps because the story wasn't right. making sense. Right. So he excises that, but then he puts in over a half an hour more. And so the film- So it's really a different movie. It's really a different movie, which I would have to rewatch like the original yeah. to see how different, because I'm coming at it where- I wanted to see this film. And then I discovered a few weeks ago, suddenly it's streaming and it's streaming yes. on Amazon Prime. I saw it streaming on a different service and thought that was the only service and it happened right, to be right, 4K right. and I got to see it in 4K. <laughs> and so I, I was so excited to watch this thing. Um, not from the standpoint that I was like, it's going to be a great movie. It's an interesting uh, thing to do to see a movie that's been recut. Yeah. So I, I watch it and at the end of it, did I think it was some masterpiece? No. However, I did feel like we should talk about this film. So I made you watch it. Yes. And now I want to just fill you in on a few things that Coppola was saying. I actually watched this interview that was done in, at like the New York Film Festival last year when he okay. premiered it. And he had on the stage with him, he had Gregory Hines's brother, and he also had James Remar, mm. um, who plays Dutch Schultz. And he's an actor that yes. a lot of us know who's in the 80s. Um, he actually, um, he had some drug problems in the mid 80s, kind of hurt his career. He was actually oh. supposed to be the head guy in Aliens. Oh, I didn't realize that. Okay. Um, he was supposed to be the head guy in Aliens, but then he had to get sent off to rehab. And even though he was not cast because James Cameron didn't want to have um, Michael Bean play another Reese character. Right. And he actually told him he didn't have the role. And so James Remar was cast. Like, I think it was like a week into it. And they actually asked Bean to come in. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. But anyways, James Remar, uh, who's in 48 Hours, he's the villain yeah, there yeah, yeah. and he's a drugstore cowboy. He's got such an amazing face. This was my impressions the first time and the second time. The best single performance in the movie, in my opinion, is James Remar. I disagree. Well, that'll be interesting. We'll get to that. But uh, <laughs> so Coppola, this is his thought is that, well, first of all, I think what you're watching uh, this movie is better than the original from what I remember. Yeah. Is it a lot better? I don't know. It's certainly it's it's on its way. But the fundamental problem is that you have a movie that really is. It's kind of could be an, it could have been an interesting gangster like upstairs downstairs movie where you have the front of the house these awful white and the back of the house and the yeah. back of the house that movie was not made even with this because you were dealing with a time and place in eighty four with producers writers creators that were not really invested or interested in the black experience. Well, and that's what's odd about this movie is that it's really two so totally separate stories. Plot-wise, they never really interact with each other in a meaningful way. There needs to be some kind of connection. Yeah. And that's where it really uh, struggles. And I think that even though uh, like Coppola went back and, and put this together, there's still, I don't know whether there was footage or whatever. A three-hour movie, as I contend, is really where this film should have been. Yes. Yeah. Um, but I think the problem is that there was a lot of interference. And the studio, the notes were coming back that, and I have this written down. Yeah. <laughs> this was the notes. And Coppola talked about this at the film festival. So after they saw his first cut, these were the notes. Too long, too much music, too many black people. Wow. And he was 
continually threatened with being removed throughout the entire film. And I think that even as they were uh, filming, I think the notes were, you got to rewrite this. You got to make the white character stronger so that no matter what he's done, even after restoring this cut, the film as written was never written with a strong black story, even though the movie is begging for it. It's begging for it. And yeah, the storyline, the Gregory Hines storyline is really weak. And it's the more interesting one that you want to know more about. But there's so little plot going on. Well, for instance, you don't really get a set. Like, there's a lot of moments, even in this new movie, where, you know, he's got a relationship with Lynette McKee. Yeah. And she is a performer at the Cotton Club, Lila Rose Oliver. The idea is that she's a light-skinned black woman who can pass for white and she wants to be on Broadway. And they they form some kind of relationship. But then there's these scenes where he's like, I love you, I want to marry you. And you're like... Wait a minute. Where did that come from? Yeah, they even dating. There's there's a missing part here. Yes, and so yeah, that storyline just kind of skips over stuff. And and I actually found some of their scenes really compelling in terms of like her her being light skin and just the their conversation about race. I found really interesting. And like, there's a lot of great scenes in this movie. Well, now that the movie's been restored, you get some of these great scenes back. So like, there's a Richard Gere's mom yes. is played by the um, the legendary dancer, Gwen Vierden. And I think she was relegated to like almost a cameo in the yeah. uh, original, uh, the cut that we saw in 1984. And it's almost like when you see somebody that you can recognize as an actor yeah. or actress and they only have like that one or two scenes, you're like, something must Wait have Wait a minute, up. yeah. <laughs> and so now you get more of that. And it's interesting because you never really got much of um, Gear's family life. Like you knew that his brother was a wannabe gangster, Nicholas Cage, right. but they didn't really have any scenes together in the old version. And now there's a bunch of that yeah, stuff. But of course now you know, why they cut it out because Nicolas Cage it was a terrible actor <laughs> back in 1984 and he got I actually no think, no no come on he's terrible uh, you didn't let me finish I didn't but I was just, I was concerned I think this is the best early Nick Cage performance I thought he was terrible in Rumblefish I don't remember him in Rumblefish but okay so you're right like see I think they were filming this movie and it took so long in the editing that I think that yeah. he shot and released Rumblefish before this. this yeah and then yes. also he filmed i think after he filmed the cotton club i think is when he filmed valley girl okay okay even though valley girl came out earlier i could be wrong on that but i okay. mean i i just i i just felt that it's weird cage started his career pretty terrible then he yes. got quirky and kind of cool then he got amazing then he went hollywood and then he went back to like just terrible <laughs> Just absolute terrible. Yeah, it's a very interesting career he's had. But then, of course, then we have Diane Lane. Now, here's the problem. The original cut, this is what I thought was a different. She somehow seemed like she acted better in this version. Oh, interesting. Than she did in the original because whatever moments they gave her, just it just came out of nowhere. Plus, when you don't have any development of the character right. at all, it just feels really weird. But the problem is she was 18 when she shot it. And she should have been somebody in her 20s because her character didn't have the experience. Right. She herself, I don't think, had the experience didn't to play that Didn't have the character. experience that the character is supposed to have because she's she's a pretty jaded character in a lot of ways. There's there's a great scene with, with her and Richard Gere where he's saying there's certain things you can't do, right? You can't see a psychopath murder somebody and then have tea with them in the morning and 
think everything's fine. And she says, yes, I can. Right. But you don't understand any of her motives because right. that's what that's exactly what I'm getting at is that the dialogue lends itself to this sort of jaded, uh, rough around the edges kind of character. But she doesn't really play it that way. Unfair. I mean, she obviously became a pretty talented actress, but yeah. I don't think she was right for that role. I mean, Coppola has this thing of uh, miscasting people. I don't know when she was cast because, so here's the thing. When he came on board, he didn't want to do this movie. Oh. Robert Evans was originally supposed to be his directorial debut. I don't know if you know that. Okay. And Evans called him up and he says, I'm having problems with my one of my kids. And Coppola said, well, I love kids. I thought that he was calling up for advice on his kids. And he said, I need you to come out. And he's like, okay, I'll come out for a meeting. Fine. You know, we'll put in a, all the problems we've had with the Godfather movies that are successful. We're going to put it behind. I'll go see what, what, what kind of help I can do with your kids. And he comes out and he's like, yeah, I'm having problems with my kid, the Cotton Club. He's like, what? <laughs> That's not what you, <laughs> your movie? He's like, yeah. He's like, he's like, well, he's like, okay, I agree. He agreed. He said, well, I'll come out and I know you. I said, you'll be fine in the, in the director's chair. I'll come out and I'll help you. Like, I'll sit there, unpa- I'll right. come out for a week. He's like, no, 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 no. It's got to be you. He's like, you got you to gotta give me that, that, that uh, Godfather magic. That's what this movie needs. Because he already, Evans wasn't right. really thinking. He thought, I got this gangster period film and it just happens to be set in the Cotton Club. And he didn't care. He just saw the Godfather magic. Right. And wanted to just repeat that. Yeah. And so Coppola said, I'd give you a week free writing it. And next thing you know, he's rewriting the whole thing. And then, and then Puzo's <laughs> in there and they're just trying to make this thing. And so I think what happens is when you've got a project that sounds cool and then you get financing and all these other things, it just happens, but you don't necessarily have the movie to go with it. Right. And so here's the thing. They had financing attached to this big young star that's all hot, Richard Gere. Yes. The problem is Richard Gere didn't want to play a gangster. Oh, really? He wanted to play a musician because he plays the cornet. <laughs> Wait, so they rewrote the character? So he so he wanted to play and they're like, but you don't understand, Richard, is that, that no white person ever played at the Cotton Club. He said, well, I'm not going to be in the movie if I have to be a gangster. I want to be like a musician who maybe falls in with the gangsters. So then they sort of kind of crafted a story where he's like a George Raft kind of guy, where right. the guy was with gangsters, went out to Hollywood and kind of made a tough guy. But now you had a complaint that you texted me. And that's the genesis of it is that Richard Gere so badly wanted to be able to play yes. the trumpet that- they found a way to like kind of have him come on as sort of like this guest guy for the like, time at the Cotton Club and that maybe he played right. some other clubs. But he, but yeah, you're right. There was no way he should have been playing with those musicians at any time. <laughs> at any time, yeah. Yeah, but he was forced to, otherwise he wouldn't have done the movie and the movie was about <laughs> the financing and that's how Hollywood works, which is why I'm so fascinated by this story and that this movie, oh, and, and man. it's and imperfect. So it, but, and it's still kind of a mess of a movie, but I got to say this. I enjoyed it. The first 10 minutes I I was like, ah, it's feeling like a little bit of a chore. And then I got more and more caught up in it. And I just, it was an enjoyable watch. I, I didn't think Diane Lane was terrible. I no, thought no, she that's was. That's the whole thing is she, the whatever he did, by putting scenes back and putting them in the right place and extra scenes, her performance isn't terrible anymore. And Richard Gere wasn't terrible either. I find Richard Gere charming in it. Um, I think James Remar is great. And my favorite performance in the movie is Bob Hoskins. So that's also improved in this version. The relationship with Bob Hoskins and Fred Gwynn was yeah. way reduced in the original version. Okay. So you get more of them, but it also feels like 
again, you see all these side characters having their own little movie. Yeah. Here's another thing is Coppola almost lost his job because <laughs> he gets this nasty, nasty call from Robert Evans and says, there's no way that fucking monster guy is going to be in my movie. <laughs> because Coppola cast Fred Quinn as Frenchie Damage. And Evans was like, no. And he's like, he's like, that's it. You're not, he, he says, you're not coming to the set. You're out. I don't want it. And if you want it, you can fire me, but you got to stop. Wow. So that just shows you how a guy can make a star turn on TV and create a character that is so iconic that it hurt his whole career. Yeah. Because yeah. producers like Robert Evans are like, I don't want that monster guy in my movie. Uh, but but he's great in the movie. He's absolutely great. Yeah. yeah. That scene in the bathroom with Bob Hoskins. Yeah. Oh, I'm telling you, there's all this stuff that I think I, I have to go back, but I think a lot of that stuff didn't make it into the final movie. Yeah. Um. So, you know what I mean? It's a real mixed bag, but you really enjoy a lot of what's going on and the dance sequences that were just cut right out of the film yes they're back the dance sequences are, are fantastic all the stuff at the cotton club with people performing is really enjoyable yeah i like i i, I don't know i like richard gear i'll just admit that i uh look i'm telling you what you want to go back for an experiment you should try to find the original version and watch it and you'll see how editing can change things because his character yeah. because it's so underdeveloped and you don't understand any of the motivations and scenes are cut right, out. His right. character seems so wooden in the other version. Okay. But now with his mom in there more. All and that stuff. And then, of course, you get to see, I think she might have been in for like half a second, but there's Jennifer Grey plays Nicolas Cage's wife. Yes. Yes. It, it's. I mean, there's always <laughs> another thing, too, that got cut out, too. Another actress that I always liked, big 80s actress. Um, and she was also in other uh, Coppola films. Like, she was in Peggy Sue Got Married. Lisa Jane Persky plays- Oh, uh, yeah. Plays Dutch Schultz's wife. Yes. Oh, yes. That's an, and, and that she makes a lot out of a very small role. And so, you know who else does? Another actor who's completely truncated in the original version, but he gets a great line in this version. Lawrence Fishburne as Bumpy Rhodes. Oh yes, he gets a he gets a great. That line's not, I don't think, in the original film. Yeah, in, in that in the Hoofers Club scene when he has to say that I have two things I have to be. Yes, is I have to be black and I have to to die or something like that. It, it, yeah, I forget what it I, is I just exactly. watched it. He has a great line. Yeah. I don't even get it right. <laughs> he has a great line. Trust us. It's in the movie if you see it. But uh, yeah, no, early on in the movie, I was like, wait a minute. Is that Lawrence Fishburne? Well, you know who also just was relegated to like a one scene cameo, but he gets he gets his big moment restored in the movie right there at the intro. And I recognize this at the beginning. I'm like, this is different than the original movie. Original movie starts right into the Cotton Club and you're right, right in with uh, the gangster you missed this opening where the 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 guy at the front gate there yes is saying to somebody that they can't go in if they're black right well do you know who that person is right it's no woody strode <laughs> yeah woody strode was was the guy who's the the guy at the front of the gate the guy, and he's uh, okay. he gets a few scenes in this movie interesting okay yeah he does get a few scenes yeah also, one of the hench guys in the in the Cotton Club yeah. is played by this theater actor Julian Beck, who was the creepy old man in Poltergeist Two. 
you know now you're like oh yeah that guy yep yep now i am like oh yeah yeah oh i mean it, and alan garfield he plays abadaba berman who's based on a real yep. guy and um you know so there's a lot of things going on in this movie like i said it's not entirely successful but it's way more successful than the original version yes so i you know i enjoyed them i mean it's not like i don't think people need to run out and see this no, but if you're ever curious, like, I think it's fascinating that like something you just never thought you'd ever get to see. Yeah. And I don't feel like it's just like, like one of those director's cuts where they put in a couple of badly acted scenes and say, no, it's a no, no, this, cut. Is, this is a real, I think it's better than the original movie. So Coppola said that sometimes a shorter movie feels like a longer one. And yeah. that's why it's important to give movies a little breathing room and explain plot a little bit. And it doesn't feel so laborious. Okay. So just a little trivia thing. Yeah. I love it. Dutch Schultz. Yep. Has been played by several different actors. Yes, he has. By the way, J- James Remar uh, is one of the ones that was actually closest in age to the real guy. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. Vic Morrow in Portrait of a Mobster. Never saw that. 1961. Oh, wow. Also, Vincent Gardenia. When, what movie was that? Mad Dog Cole. When did that come out? Also 1961. Wow. Okay. He was, he was very popular in the early 60s. And then James Remar, then uh, Dustin Hoffman and Billy Bathgate. Which, you know what? That book is incredible, and that movie was terrible, and, and he's like way too old. The movie is terrible. I, yeah. Oh, man, that movie. And the book's incredible. Yeah. I love that book. And that's why I couldn't believe that the book was so great and the movie is just such a misfire. But part of the problem is that Dustin Hoffman, I think, was already like like early 60s, late 50s. He was 50s. like 200 years old in that movie. <laughs> and, and, and the real Dutch Schultz was 32. <laughs> so, I mean, you know. And so then uh, last one is Tim Roth in a movie called Hoodlum from 1997. Which uh, Lawrence Fishburne plays the real character that Bumpy Rhodes was based on. Oh, you're right. Okay. So that's another thing. It's like the well is deep with that story, but I also feel like the gangster story wasn't very cohesive. It's not. And I think that also it would be very hard for Richard Gere's character to become a famous actor at the same time while his brother kills some innocent kids on the street. <laughs> that just wouldn't work. Plus, also, did you notice the cameo that uh, Sofia Coppola is the girl selling the uh, candy or flowers or whatever? I did not notice that. Yeah, he put her in a lot of movies. She's also he in. Did. Uh, she's in uh, Peggy Sue Got Married as well, and Rumblefish. And she's also the baby that's getting uh, baptized at the end of The Godfather. Yep. Okay, so uh, <laughs> I recommend the Con Club, but don't have to run out and see it. But I think it's. Well, you wouldn't uh, run out and see it. You'd watch it at home. <laughs> Well, you know what I mean. Yes. Okay. I got you. Okay. Well, okay. We got one more movie. Do we have time for it? Yeah, we do. Um, (laughs) I got to set the stage here because this is kind of, this was like one of these weird accidents, right? Is that again, I'm like you, I'm very suspect anytime um, a movie comes on on Netflix, that's like one of their new movies because, you know, there's a lot of the sort of like crappy stuff that they put out there. So I sometimes just ignore it. Sometimes, yeah, they just buy stuff and put it on and see what sticks. Unless I know the movie's coming out. Like, for instance, like with The Irishman and Marriage Story, if it's one of their premiere films, I'm ready for it. But otherwise, I don't even know about it. I don't want to watch it. So last week, we were, I don't know, we were going to watch something. And whatever the connection on our TV, like, did something weird where the center channel went out. And it was strange because we could see people talking, but all we could hear was the surround music. Weird. 
Yeah. I was like, so we're trying to figure that out. Like I thought, <laughs> well, maybe the sound bar and it wasn't, it was like a signal with the TV. And so I'm like, okay, well, wait a minute. We're watching cable. Let me switch over to the Apple TV and I'll click on Netflix right. just, you know, quickly to see if it's, it's, if it's, uh, you know, is it cable? Right. What's yeah. going where, on? Where's the issue? Yeah. So I click on a Netflix and I just needed to hit something really fast. Apparently it was the same day that this particular movie came out. Uh, so it was the first thing that popped up when it starts to give you its preview and everything. So I just clicked on it. Right. I didn't, even, I didn't look at the title. Right. Uh, I just said, oh, okay, whatever this is. So this movie comes on. And of course, I'm waiting to see if like anybody talks. <laughs> right, right. And I hear this music and then I see these images. I'm like, oh, this movie's kind of interesting looking. And my wife and I are watching just a couple of minutes and we don't see anybody really talking. And of course, if anybody's narrating, we're not going to know. Right, right, right. <laughs> but we're really like, whoa. And then I'm like looking at the colors of this movie. And it's set, it's clearly it's set in like the 50s or 60s. Right, I right. can tell by the setting. And I said, boy, this is a texture to the color. It's kind of a little bit lighter, not as sharp as the as digital. I think this is a movie that's shot on film, but it's a brand new movie. What would be shot on film? That yeah. can't be. But I, I already recognized that the colors look different. Right, right, right. And then there was some kind of flashback and it looked like, oh, wait a minute. There's, okay, it looks like there's like like war. It must be World War II or right. something. And just, but I'm watching it with uh, just background music and I still am waiting for somebody to look like they're moving their lips. And I'm like, <laughs> I think there's, the, I think the center channel's off. But I'm now we're wrapped up and I'm like, okay, well, when we get this fixed, we got to find out what this movie is. <laughs> and so we did. We, we just shut the TV down. We started it up. And sure enough, it was our center channel. It was back. Okay. And we said, let's go check this movie back out and let's hear what we missed if there was any sound. Right. And, and there is narration right at the beginning. So the movie is a brand new film called The Devil All the Time. It's director Antonio Campos. And... Mm-hmm. If you know him at all, he directed this movie that I really liked from a few years ago called Christine. Oh, yeah. I have not seen it. Yeah. And I remember at the time watching and said, boy, this film should just feel like one of these crappy, you know, um, independent films. It's set like in the 70s, right. but it really doesn't look like it because it's today. But I'm like, this person has a real attention to detail because this is a really good little movie. And so sure enough, he's got this next film. So we decided yeah. we'd put it on to just to see what we missed. And now it made it a lot more sense because there was narration. However, we ended up watching the first 45 minutes of this movie. We got sucked right in. Mm-hmm. It was kind of dark. It was kind of twisted, uh, a little bit morbid, um, kind of a Southern Gothic kind of story. It is. It's a Southern Gothic. Yeah. And uh, But it just had an interesting way about it. And the way that the narration was done, it was a little bit more like it was narration from a book or something. Yes. I, it just captivated me because it didn't, you know, it wasn't like you were hearing the typical narrator. You know who the narrator is, right? Well, yeah. So I find out afterwards that it's based on a book and that the author of the book, Donald Ray Pollock, actually is the narrator. Yes, <laughs> which is a really interesting choice. Yeah. Well, it's also rare. It's that, it's extremely rare. And so he doesn't sound. Doesn't sound, tip, but he sound, but he, I mean, sounds like he has a little bit more of a personal connection to the story. It, exactly. But he but he doesn't sound voiceovery. I, I So, so much of this stuff I really like. And yet it's like a story that's unfolding and there's multiple facets and it doesn't have a, I don't know if it does, would say it doesn't have a strong plot, but I'm, I'm really engaged. 
I think it doesn't have the strongest plot because it's not, it sort of moves from one scene to the next without necessarily a lot of logic between them always. It's a little bit of a puzzle you're trying to put together. How do these characters relate? How do they, and there's sort of two stories going on simultaneously. Well, and the narrator also sets you up for a little bit of the ominous, like he always will tell you bad things are about to happen to a character or whatever. And now you're kind of feeling a dread and, you know, in, in some respects, even though it's not any, anywhere near this type of film, it reminded both my wife and I of that movie Frailty. Oh, yeah. And maybe because, again, the Southern the Gothic. The Bill Paxton I, movie. Yeah, I love that film. Um, yeah. So, you know, again, this is a dark, dour movie. There's no real laughs in it. Everybody is horrible. And yep. it's, I, I think if, we, if you're trying to get the message of it, I mean, it's kind of about it's about power, male power, white male power, and kind of evil and corrupt people, and especially ties in a lot of how like kind of hypocritical religion is into that mix. But yet, for some reason, I, I thought about this being the kind of film that I would have maybe watched 80s or 90s, that it would have come out at a time of the year when the big box office films weren't right. available, but it would be released, not a lot of publicity. I would have slipped into that theater because, say, I was working there when I was a teenager, and I would have just fallen in love with this movie. Okay, so you fell in love with the movie. I kind of did because I just loved everything about the way it was put together and the style, and I feel like, okay, ulti- you know, there's some things that I had some issues with, but ultimately, I feel like this is a director that I want to keep watching because he had a vision. He fought to shoot the movie on film, which Netflix never does. He must have yeah. justified it, and it looks incredible to me the cinematography is by this guy lol crawley but then here i but but i had one issue before i live here because i know i don't think you had the same opinion as i did so i'm fascinated by that is that it is the whitest movie ever oh it's there's not a there's not a single even extra that's black Uh, no that that kind of is weird because it's also set not in in ohio and it's set in the um like was it west virginia yeah, um, and 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 the fact that you don't see a single uh, person of color, and they're not even part of the story, that because of the time we live in, like if this was the '80s, I probably wouldn't even have blinked twice. You wouldn't have noticed, but yeah. But I thought that was why it was an interesting thing to talk about in in regards to the fact that we just saw, you know had this movie, The Cotton Club. Right. Exactly. But here's yeah. a story that couldn't find um, couldn't find any room for a person of color. And I don't know if that kind of makes it less of a film, but it's something that it's definitely noticeable. Yeah. And it makes me curious about the book, you know, where this, uh, where it came from is that is, is the book like that, or is this something, a choice the movie made? So I thought this was one of the best bad movies I've ever seen. (laughs) Okay. You have to explain that. Well, I think, I think maybe it's a different way of saying like for me is that I go in, maybe it's like that. It's a pulpy B movie where I, I can't say that it's like, it's just for some reason it grabbed me, but it's not the kind of, it's not the same way I think another movie is great. I just. Okay. So here's the thing. I think the filmmaking is great. I think the attention to period detail and the production design is amazing. The cinematography is great. The editing is great. The performances are great. There's even a bunch of great scenes and some good dialogue, but at the end of the day, none of it adds up to anything for me. But what do you feel like is that that becomes the challenging question about what does a movie need to add up? Like it's a it's just a, here's a story. It's a story about it was a struggle for me for the first hour of this movie trying to hold on to all the parts. Really? 
Yeah. And I just, I was like, where is this headed? Why? What's the story? Who, which character am I following? I, I just couldn't quite wrap my head around what the movie was trying to do. Then I started to, well, then something happened. Yeah, so a, a certain actor shows up. A certain actor and shows up. And he's just up. so awesome. And he just takes over the movie. <laughs> we're talking about Robert Pattinson, right? Yes, we were talking about Robert Pattinson, who just makes Tom Holland look weak. Okay, because Tom Holland, you know, Pretty Boy, uh, yeah. Spider-Man, I like seeing him being a little bit of a darker character. Oh, I, I, I didn't, I'm just comparing him. Oh, but Robert, I mean, Robert Pattinson, this guy puts on a freaking show. Uh, he puts on a freaking show and it is something to see and it pulls me in. Can, can I offer you something that you may not get from the film yeah. that I wouldn't get either? But, you know, my wife, she grew up in West Virginia. Oh, yeah. And then Ohio. And while we're watching this movie, which she loved, by the way, the thing that she kept noting is that I've never seen a film that got the accents of where I came from so right. So right. And that's, you know, that's from the Pattinson. He was from, supposed to be from Tennessee yep. to all of the characters. And what's really interesting is almost everyone in the cast, besides being white, they're not Eng they're not American. Absolutely. You have Bill Skarsgård. He's from Sweden. Yes. <laughs> Tom Holland, England. Then you have Sebastian Stan. Yes. Romania. Yes. Jason Clark, <laughs> Australian. Harry Melling. He is from England. And by the way, I don't know if you recognize Harry Melling. He's been showing up and stuff, and he was amazing in this one episode of, of Ballad of Buster Scruggs, playing a guy who, who who recited all sorts of Shakespeare, but he only had he had no arms and legs. And he's also uh, plays this guy in The Old Guard, which is another one of those Netflix movies. Did you catch that with- the, Oh, I, wait, was that the thing with Charlize Theron? Yeah. Did you see that? Yeah. It was it was nice to see something new at the time, right? When we were oh, yeah, absolutely. There, yeah. No, it, it, it was an enjoyable- Well, he was that bad guy in that. Oh. But what you might not realize, when he was a young, more of a stoutly child, he played Dudley in the Harry Potter movies. Interesting. Yeah, he's becoming like this, you know, interesting character guy. Um, so okay. Robert Pattinson, he's English. Mia Wasikowska, Australian. Yes. Eliza Scanlon, who played Lenora Lafferty, um, she was the girl that uh, Tom Holland. They were sort of like, you know, not quite brother and sister. Yeah. She's Australian. Th this is again my point is that like the attention to detail on this movie is incredible, and. <laughs> but at the, okay so again at, at the, by the end of the movie i'm like uh, here's here's one of my issues is that the ending relies on a major coincidence yeah i mean but you also knew well it starts though with a major coincidence so i mean again yes, it, and it i does. think that's the all idea the idea of circumstance and everything circling because i agree but it didn't i, I came away with the from the movie going what what was i supposed to like i i didn't like did you realize and it took me a little bit to understand this but did you understand that riley keogh who was obviously with Jason Clark yeah. and they were the, you know, tra traveling people that yeah. I thought, and that's sort of like based on the honeymoon murderers people, right? Right. Um, yeah. That she was the sister of the other waitress who Bill Skarsgård ended up marrying. Yes, I did realize that. And yeah, exactly. No, it has that idea of circumstance, but I, I did not feel satisfied by the uh, by the time I got to the end of this movie. I felt like there's a lot of cool stuff going on, but it didn't 
it didn't come together for me to, and yes, I, I'm not talking about some deep message or something or some political statement. I, what I mean is that like, I didn't, I think I knew by the time I was getting to that, where it was all going to be. And it's like, okay, well, it's just, it's just kind of story. And like I said, it's not necessarily as like a masterpiece, but I went with it. I really enjoyed my uh, time with these awful people. And I just, <laughs> they are awful people, but yeah. Pattinson was just so great. <laughs> well, there's so much to like about this movie, but it didn't come together for me. It didn't. And, and I just didn't, ah, uh, oh, man, I just didn't get that caught up in it or, or, and I, and I think part of the issue for me is Tom Holland. And I don't think there's anything wrong with his performance. He's just always going to be Spidey to you. <laughs> well, no, I mean, I only saw one of those Spider-Man movies. I don't really, but here's the thing is I was not pulled into his character's emotional journey the way I think I needed to for this film to work. I, I, I mean, I'm not just, I'm not, I don't going to disagree. I mean, I, I think that you did enjoy yourself, but yes. I, I, I enjoyed myself more, I guess. There's there's so much to recommend this movie. Yeah, so I think you just enjoyed yourself more. Well, I just think that, you know, there's room for all kinds of films, and we don't get a film like this too often. It's true. And I, this is a director I'm going to be watching out for, because I think there's, this is, uh, there's some really good work here. And I just, I don't know, it felt like a little bit of a chore to me. Well, it didn't for me. I know. Well, I'm gl I'm glad you had. I'm glad you had a good However, experience. However, I will say that I did see it before uh, before the news of uh, RBG's death, and that this movie <laughs> might have felt a little different watching it after all that's gone on the past week, where I, yeah. I kind of caught it before that, and where I wouldn't okay. mind seeing yeah, something that was a little bit on the downside. Um, but you know what? Here's what's amazing about Robert Pattinson: he is a method actor, and yes. he started to develop this character, but he refused to let the director or anybody know what he was going to do. He didn't, really? They didn't know what his accent was going to be like or anything. He wanted to wait until the cameras were rolling and it was that first scene for the energy. And so you could just imagine wow. when he unleashes, I mean, it, it's just that, that character, like I said, see, this is why I love this, yeah. this movie is because this is one of those movies that's not meant to be, oh, one of the greatest oscar winning films it's just one of those films that would come out in a year that like oh yeah there's that movie devil all the time where it has this character and there's that part and i just think about that as a teenager where i was yes. always looking for films like this that offered me these moments oh man yeah i i mean i can't say enough about pattinson really there's things he does with his face that are so engaging and so revealing and so and communicate so much in these little tiny subtle movements again you know tom holland is no no i might have liked the movie better without pattinson because then i would have thought holland oh, was man. That, <laughs> well you know who i didn't like um i'm not a big fan of this guy anyway but i just didn't think he was right for the role because he didn't add any meat to that character so you really didn't care about his storyline as much was uh, sebastian stan playing the deputy, the corrupt deputy. Oh, yeah. That was yeah. originally supposed to be Chris Evans. Um, he got busy. And then he actually suggested to the, the people making the film that Sebastian Stan might be okay. somebody. So I just didn't, you know, it just doesn't get me that excited. Yeah, that... That would have been another great moment that was missed. 
that was a storyline that I was less interested in. Yeah, because there was stuff going on that just didn't feel like, if, if anything, I felt it was a flaw, like with him and those other corrupt city officials and then him going over. Like it, it, that part just that was getting a little lost for me. Yeah. And this movie is also two hours and 20 minutes long. I think uh, it's a little bit sprawling, but I liked it. I mean, I was fine with that length. I, you know, uh, like I said, for some reason, it just it was enjoyable to see this film that I knew. You know, again, when you know nothing about a movie, it gets dropped on you and, and you know nothing about it. And then you go in and it's this well made. Well, plus it was also about, a story. I mean, I didn't know, like, I, I, of course, could figure out where certain things were going. As it started, I had no idea what this movie was even about. Like I said, we, we, we turned it on by accident. And so it was fun to fall into a film that I was not prepared for. Yeah. Um, you know, like, so like, you know, when I was going to the Cotton Club Encore, I, I knew a lot about the Cotton you, Club. You had a lot going in. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess that's where I was. So I, I'm giving Devil All the Time, not for everybody, but I'm I'm recommending it uh, pretty strongly for a lot of people to check out, especially again, if you have Netflix, it's there for you free. Yeah. It's uh, probably one of the better movies Netflix has put out in a while. And it's on their top 10, I think, like it has been for the last week or so. People are watching it. I was able to pick up and notice right off the bat, just from a visual that, hey, I think this thing is on film. It just showed you. I had no idea whether, I didn't know anything about the movie. I had to look it up and I was shocked. I went to the technical details to see like, okay, is this just really good digital or nope, it was shot on film. And that's amazing that they let him do that. This is another thing why, why I, I put him higher in regards because uh, one of my big knocks on the It movie was that, you know, here is a film, it was in the 80s. Did they have digital then? No. Right. So you want to capture the look. Then you fight for film because you wanted to give it a, a feeling. And I feel like a movie, if, if that was shot in film, it would have been creepier. It would have, yeah. He, this guy, he shoots a film that, that takes place in the 50s and 60s. And I think that the texture of, the, of it being a film added that layer of creepiness. Oh, I totally agree. Uh, yeah, totally agree. The film, well, again, it's the period detail of this movie. It, like at no point did I, and I remember thinking several times, wow, that really looks like it's from the time. Like, you know, they really went all out on creating this period. And I think the fact that it's shot on film helps that. The lighting isn't as harsh looking. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and you don't have like an overlay of the LUT, you know, like the, right. oh, we're going to give it that, the 50s LUT. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Instead, it's like, oh no, we're going to rely on actual like film stock and texture. Uh, okay, so look, you know, like a, a reserved thumbs up from you. Yeah, a, a a yeah, a reserved thumbs up from me. But but you know, give it forty five minutes and wait for the entrance of Robert Pattinson. That's definitely a performance worth watching for in the whole movie. I, I just feel like I'm going to watch this guy in pretty much anything. <laughs> Pattinson's one of those guys where I mean, you know, I didn't start off. Obviously, you started off with those uh, Twilight movies after, of course, being in Harry Potter and Goblet of Fire. But right, he, this guy made a decision. He said, "Okay, I've done that." And I could just go that that route and be a, a, a lame Hollywoody guy, and I'll probably fizzle out. Or I could take interesting roles that I want to do, and that is what he has done, and it's and it's great. Is it the Lost City of Z? What is that movie called? Yes, the James Gray film that really isn't that good. However, however, he's incredible. He's incredible. He's a very interesting character actor in it. 
Yeah. And now he's going to be Batman. And now he's going to be Batman. I mean, we'll see what he does there. I thought he was really good in a little movie. It's called, I think it's called Life, but it was the story of the photographer who takes the pictures of James Dean. Yes, that was called Life. Yeah. And uh, the same same guy that did uh, the film about uh, the guy from... Joy Division, the Control, Anton. Oh Corbin, right, I, think, I never saw that. that. Yeah, and uh, I caught it about a year ago. And uh, yeah, is it a great movie or anything? No, it's just like a little gem. But I, it was really interesting. Again, Pattinson, man, he's just very interesting to watch. And of course, he was also in that uh, another movie that he he sought the directors out. How about that? Because he saw the poster for something and said, "I want to work with those guys." And but you were thinking about Good Time, yeah, with the uh, Shafty brothers. Yeah, well, he sought them out because he saw he was at some like film festival or something. He saw the poster <laughs> for one of their films that they had done before, and he just looked at the poster and he said, "There's a look here. These guys, I want to find." <laughs> then he researched them and said, "I want to work with with directors like that." Yeah, that's amazing. They got a call and their agent said, yeah, Robert Pattinson, he would like to work with you on something. And they're just like, what? What? Okay. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And he like literally like they started developing it because he wanted to be in a movie with them. And he was great in that too. He's ma- And then the lighthouse. I mean, he's just making really cool choices. Yeah. And that's what we always look for, right? We want out of an actor or actress, somebody that just kind of does these interesting performances. Yeah. Uh, they're not as concerned about how big is my part or- Exactly. Well, I think that's another thing about the devil all the time that might've thrown you off a little bit is that, again, maybe your, your preconceived notions. I was raving about it a little bit. You knew all these actors. Right. What you're not prepared for is that- these actors aren't just like introduced in the first 10 to 20 minutes that right. like suddenly they come in and that can be a little unsettling that, oh, you're waiting for Robert Pattinson, let's say, and he's <laughs> right. not into like 50 minutes in the movie or like suddenly, you know, Tom Holland's there. And when you get new people introduced, it can be a different thing for, you know, that, yeah. not a lot of movies are like that. Even though Riley Keough and Jason Clark, they're introduced and then even mentioned again, you don't really get to their story till much later. Much later, kicking yeah. around. But see, I think that it adds to the dread a little bit because what you start to get is you realize these characters are all going to meet up. What's right. going to happen? Yes. So instead yes. of like being like, oh, what a coincidence they all met up. It's more like, oh, what's going to happen when they all meet up? Yeah, because you, you know that that's inevitably where it's headed. I don't know. I have such mixed feelings about this movie. Yeah, but, but even though you said it was the best worst movie you ever saw or something like that. Yes, exactly. <laughs> or the best bad movie you ever saw, which, you know, <laughs> which is weird because if you want to like it and just something is keeping you from admitting you like it because as if like the, the bad movie police are going to come over and go, wait a minute. No, because I think it's it didn't resonate with me. I think it resonated more than you want to admit. <laughs> you're just like you're like it bothers you i think you're like well, james no, saw something in this that i didn't why <laughs> no there were times during the movie when i was like i love this it's brilliant there were times when i loved it and then there were other times when i was like yeah this really isn't working so it just felt kind of uneven to me before the movie was over i kind of realized it was going to be one of those films that wasn't going to like resolve in some awesome slam bang way that was going to make me really satisfied and when i know that i go in with a different sort of feeling about what the movie's going to give me uh, i didn't expect okay here's the thing the first few minutes of the narration yeah made me think it was going to add up in a different way than it did you have expectations yeah but the movie sort of set up an expectation for me that it didn't fulfill and i guess for me and i saw it in two sittings right yeah again like i came to it in such a strange way that I really was like, okay, I don't even know what this movie is, where it's going to go. I just want to kind of play it out and see what's happening. And then for me, it was just 
interesting how these little kind of chapters closed and they sort of like built right. up into like something. And then I realized really what the theme of the movie was. And it was just, you know, again, I looked at it as a very cynical look on religion. <laughs> that's, that's what I got. Well, I <laughs> can't disagree with that. Definitely the religious characters do not come off all that well in this movie. No, no. So I thought that was, <laughs> so that was something that I thought was very fascinating. This idea of what people's crazy devotions to things and what they yes. want to believe and, um, and kind of like the, the sort of sacrificing these things. And I, again, I, I, I liked it a lot, but I did have a problem with the fact that it just was so white and there wasn't even like, it was almost like saying, well, we don't have any black characters in the movie. So we won't even have any um, <laughs> so let's just go extras, let's just right? go all the I mean, way it was yeah. really like there isn't a single speaking part for a for a person of color in the movie i don't even know if there's any in the background no so again that that's my that would be my biggest critique of the film but anyways that's what we uh that's what we have for you uh listener that's some stuff we watched yeah yep yep yeah, that was good though but uh anyways people you know keep fighting the good fight uh we're gonna do what we can democracy isn't dead yet uh so we got that and then you know go watch some stuff enola holmes is what i'm gonna be watching this yep, weekend i'm and, gonna watch that this weekend and the, the rest of the octopus teacher movie yeah i want to check that out that you gotta see i really liked it and i, I mean i've only seen the first half hour but i'm, I'm sure I'm gonna right. the rest of all right, uh, stuffweseen.com, feedback at stuffweseen.com. Teal, you want to give me your personal information in case anybody wants to get in touch with you? Social security number? Yeah, sure. Let's call it on. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what's going on anymore. Just trying to hang on. Anyways, people, uh, that's it for me. Goodbye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.